support for WERU comes from Maine Farmland Trust, a member-supported nonprofit organization focused on reviving the working landscape and securing a future for farming in Maine. More information on protecting farmland and supporting farmers at mainefarmlandtrust.org. The time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Common Ground Radio with your host CJ Walk is up next. Good morning and welcome to Common Ground Radio an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture here in the state of Maine, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. My name is C.J. Walk, and I am your host for today's show. Common Ground Radio is a monthly show airing on the first Friday of every month at 10 a.m. here on WERU. Today, we're going to be talking about soil management and organic farming and gardening systems, and this is the show we had originally scheduled for back in February, but we were snowed out and the, sna- and the station was closed, so I'm happy that we can uh, make this happen for sure. So for today, I have a couple guests uh, on the phone and here in the studio with me, but before we get to introductions and discussion, I'd like to make listeners aware of a few food and farming-related events they may find of interest here in our community. So there's a few things happening this weekend. Uh, Tomorrow, April 2nd, is Rural Living Day, and that runs from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. at Mount View High School out in Thorndike. And this is the the 22nd annual day-long event with over 20 workshops related to gardening, cooking, home energy, backyard livestock, and homesteading. And for more information, you can contact the Waldo County Cooperative Extension Office at 342-5971. And then also tomorrow, and also happening on April 9th, are two different uh, fruit tree grafting workshops that are run through Mofka's Organic Orcharding Workshop. So you can learn to propagate and reproduce your favorite fruit tree varieties, and participants will graft trees and take home multiple trees that they grafted uh, at the end of the workshop. So tomorrow, April 2nd, we're offering that from 10 to 3 in Bar Harbor at the College of the Atlantic uh, right on campus. And then on the 9th, it is happening in Unity at Mofka's Common Ground Education Center. And more info can be found at the Mofka website, which is www.mofka.org, or the phone, uh, phone line for the office is 568-4142. And then looking at next week, on April 6th, is the Grow Your Own Organic Garden classes. And these typically run from 6 to 9 p.m., and they are offered in over 40 locations throughout the state. This is an evening course designed to provide gardeners with essential skills and knowledge needed to make a transition from conventional to organic gardening. And more information can be found through the MOFCA website, through your county uh, cooperative extension office, and also many adult education offices in your local school district. <clears throat> and then the final event I wanted to mention um, coming up in the middle of the month, this is on April 15th and 16th is the 34th National Pesticide Forum, Cultivating Community and Environmental Health. And this is being held down at the University of Southern Maine in Portland and convened by Beyond Pesticides, the Toxic Action Center, and MOFCA. So registration includes access to all sessions as well as organic food and beverages. 
and the forum provides an opportunity for grassroots advocates, scientists, and policymakers to share their efforts and build local, state, and national strategies for strength and growth. This year's conference will focus on the adoption of policies to protect human health and the environment and organic land and building management strategies. So more info can be found through the Beyond Pesticides website, which is beyondpesticides.org, the Toxics Action Center, which is toxicsaction.org, or the MOFCA website, which is MOFCA.org. So, so there's a few events going on. Uh, there's a lot happening this time of year. So to get back to the show, today we are talking about soil management and organic farming and gardening systems. And I have four guests on the show today. We have two on the phone and two in the studio. And I'd like to briefly introduce each of them and then give them a chance to speak a little bit about the, the work that they do. Um, so on the phone, we have Eric Seidman, MOFCA's organic crop specialist. Good morning, Eric. We're checking to see if Eric is there. Yep, I am. Okay. Um, hello. Okay. Thanks, Eric. We'll come back to you in just a minute. Okay. And then also we have Bruce Hoskins of the Main Soil Testing Service up in Orono. Good morning, Bruce. Hi, morning, CJ. All right. Thanks for being here. And then here in the studio, we have Nicholas Lindholm from Hackmatack Farm and the Blue Hill Berry Company in Penobscot, Maine. Yes. Good morning, CJ. And also Paul Volkhausen of Happy Town Farm in Orland. Hi there. Thanks for being here, guys. Um, and do want to point out that both Nicholas and Paul's farms are certified organic by MOFCA. Um, but I'd like to come back to uh, start, I think, with you, Eric, and just for each of our guests, give them a chance to say a couple minutes about uh, the work that we do or that you do before we get into soil discussions. So, Eric, if you wanted to have a couple, couple sentences about the work you do for MOFCA, that would be great. Okay, well, uh, lots of people know me. I've worked for MOFCA since 1986. I'm approaching my 30th year anniversary, that means. Um, and I was hired as an, essentially an extension agent who works for the nonprofit MOFCA. Um, and I specialize in organic management of mostly vegetable crops and small fruit. And uh, a lot of that includes fertility management, green manuring, composting, pest management. And I basically go around the state and give lectures and write articles for Mofka's newspaper. And I am available for questions, uh, usually by email now. Uh, I've actually been with Mofka long enough that my in the old days I got questions by mail. Um, and then they became very common to be telephone questions, and uh, now I virtually get none of those. It's all by email. Okay, and what's the, what is the email address that people could reach you at, Eric? Uh, you can go to the MOFCA website, and that's easy, or my email address, if you have a pencil, is esideman, E-S-I-D-E-M-A-N, at mofka.org. Okay, all right. Thank you, Eric. And then, Bruce, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about your work at the Maine Soil Testing Service. Um, sure. Um, I've been here actually just about as long as Eric has been with MOFCA, about 35 years, actually. And um, I coordinate the soil testing program for the University of Maine. And we provide uh, analytical services through our laboratory complex. We're the general service lab for the University of Maine. Uh, soil testing, compost testing, manure testing, plant testing, basically anything to do with, with crop production and nutrient management. Um, and we provide testing services for farmers, gardeners, homeowners um, in and out of state. Um, and uh, we have uh, 
very good relationship with uh, with Mafka and and the organic growers in Maine. And uh, I also take many questions both over the phone and uh, by email. Okay. All right. Thank you, Bruce. And then we'll get to uh, folks in the studio. I think Paul, if you'd like to say a bit about uh, your farm in Orland. Okay. Uh, with my wife Karen, we run Happy Town Farm. Um, if we're going to talk about uh, reveal our age, I've been certified organic since 1986. Uh, we're a diversified farm, uh, grow uh, vegetables, flowers, have um, sheep, turkeys, make maple syrup, and uh, sell locally at the uh, Ellsworth Farmer's Market and have CSA and uh, also to local restaurants and stores. Okay. All right. Thank you. And then, Nicholas, are you going to say a little bit about, about your farming operations? Yeah, I am entering my 18th year with my wife, Ruth, on our farm in Penobscot. For six years now, we've actually split our farming operations based on what we do. We have Hackmatack Farm as our vegetable farm and the Blue Hill Berry Company as our wild blueberry farming operation. And some of that reflects the marketing that we do as well as the type of farming for each of those crops. But we... Retail mostly through direct sales on the farm at farmers markets um, and through other large main uh, CSA farms, and we're launching a website for our blueberry company as well now. Okay, all right. Well, thank you everyone for being here, and I think to uh, kind of start the discussion about uh, soils and soil management in organic systems, um, I'd like to address, uh, maybe Eric, I would address you first in this first realm. I wanted to speak a little bit about, or have you guys speak a little bit about the kind of physical and chemical and biological pieces of soil. Um, but Eric, would you be able to say just a little bit about physical structure of soil and, uh, and the importance there? Oh, sure, CJ, because I've been actually going around and giving lectures on this topic recently. Um, what I have been stressing to folks is that uh, although it's not commonly recognized, roots are actually a part of the plant that needs oxygen as much as the leaves do. Uh, plants don't have the ability to move oxygen up and down the plant like animals can, and so each cell of the root actually, actually has to be close enough to a source of oxygen to receive that oxygen. And what that means is that there has to be pore spaces in the soil. Um, the soil can tend to be compacted, or soil can be made up of very tiny particles and thus having very tiny spaces between them. And those spaces typically get filled up with water. And so the job of an organic farmer from physical aspects of their soil is to make sure their pore spaces are large enough to hold air. If you have a sandy soil, it's not as important as if you have a silt or clay soil. And one of the ways to do this is to actually get a lot of those tiny particles that you may have to stick together in secondary aggregates, um, what is uh, commonly called a crumb-like structure. And if you get this crumb-like structure, you have larger particles and thus larger spaces between them that can be filled with air. Um, and the way to do this is getting to the crux of organic farming, and that's managing the organic matter in the soil. It's because the decomposition of the organic matter releases the glues and cements that hold the tiny particles of soil together. Um, so this is the, your, essentially your aim as an organic farmer is to build and maintain good soil structure. Okay. 
All right. Can I just add one thing? Of course. Um, and that soil structure is just as important in a sandy soil and for the other reason that those pores in the organic matter will hold the water in, the, in that sandy soil. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a very good point, Paul, because not only do you need the big pores to let the water drain out um, and allow air, but you, as you say, you need uh, tiny pores as well to hold water uh, because obviously the roots need water too. Okay. All right. So that seems to depend on <clears throat> the soil type you have, whether you're on the clay side or sandy, sandier side and the different particle size. And that's right. That's I used to joke that uh, whenever somebody calls me, I always said the same answer, and that's add organic matter. Um, <laughs> and so in a sandy soil, the organic matter would be functioning uh, to build a soil that can hold water. And in a clay soil, the organic matter would be functioning to get those tiny particles of clay to stick together and form larger particles with air space. Okay. All right. Um, and then I wanted to uh, <clears throat> I wanted to ask Bruce. I wanted to ask you a question, or just introduce kind of the the chemical side um, and maybe some of the chemistry that's going on in the soil, how that's related to the condition of the soil or the soil structure, and then um, some of those major nutrients, micronutrients, and how they work in the soil as well. Kind of a broad question, I know. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, and, and I would kind of extend Eric's uh, um, comment about organic matter being very important, um, and Paul's as well, um, in terms of forming aggregates, stable aggregates in the soil, uh, opening up larger pore spaces, but it also improves uh, nutrient retention and moisture retention. Um, so organic matter is, is extremely important in, in determining nutrient holding capacity, um, and basically the size of your, of your uh, bank of nutrients that are available for plants to use. Um, just coming from the, you know, the evaluation standpoint being in a lab, traditionally soil testing has been pretty much just about nutrient chemistry. Um, you know, the, the, the supply of available nutrients, uh, is it adequate for the next crop, whatever that might be. Are they properly balanced with each other for nutrients that tend to somewhat compete with each other, like calcium, potassium, and magnesium? Um, and traditionally, that's that's been the focus of soil testing and continues to be. Uh, but in the last five to ten years, there's been more of an emphasis, and and rightly so, that you know to start looking at the soil as a as a living, breathing ecosystem, microscopic ecosystem, and to start addressing. Um, you know, soil biology, how healthy is your microbial biomass, um, actual physical <clears throat> aspects of the soil, like the stability of those aggregates that are formed in the soil. But, you know, to get back to chemistry, um, you know, we're looking at is there an adequate supply? Are they properly balanced? And we're looking at both <clears throat> the major nutrients, those that are needed in relatively large quantities by all plants and micronutrients, uh, that are needed in relatively minute quantities. Um, not sure if that answers completely your question, but no, that definitely <clears throat> that gets the ball rolling on the chemical side, I guess. Um, and then I think just thinking about the we have physical structure and nutrients that are around, um, but in a well-managed soil, is it really what what does the biology have to play in that realm and i think i would direct that uh to you eric if you... well 
the, the biology is uh, talking about all of the critters that live in the soil, uh, including the microorganisms, bacteria and fungi, and the macroorganisms, earthworms and various kinds of insects. And they are what are termed decomposers. And so they go after the organic matter, using it as a food source. And as they do, they break down very complex organic molecules, such as fat and sugars and other carbohydrates, into simpler and simpler molecules. Eventually, they are turned into minerals. The term is mineralization. And the minerals, the ions of the various minerals that are released from these complex organic matter, are what the plant can actually pick up. Um, so it, it's not, it may not be obvious, but after a while when you study plants, plants can't eat sugar or eat proteins. And what they do is they absorb simple ions, and then they can actually build those back into sugars and proteins. And it's the role of the soil organic, excuse me, the soil microorganisms and macroorganisms to break down complex molecules into simple ones that plants can absorb. Okay. And then um, I think, uh, Bruce, could I ask you maybe to explain a little bit about the, the ability of the soil to hold those ions and uh, speaking specifically about the cation exchange capacity of right. soils? Yeah, I alluded to this before with um, um, the nutrient ions that, that Eric was referring to, um, that, that's the primary way that plants take in nutrients, and um, they're dissolved you know, floating around or dissolved in the soil water as either plus charge ions, which are cations, or negatively charged ions, which are anions. And, and the soil has uh, several, has a net negative charge, and this exists primarily on very small particles in the so very small particles of organic matter or humus, and also on very fine mineral material, clay particles. They have the surfaces of these of these materials have a negative charge, and they hold these plus charge uh, ions, cations, uh, just by static attraction. I always use the analogy of rubbing a balloon on your shirt and, and sticking it to the wall. It's held there by static attraction. Um, that dissipates and the balloon falls down, but the negative charge on these small particles in the soil is permanent. And... Um, as these ions are liberated or supplied by you in in in, uh, in uh, nutrient sources, um, they're held on these exchange sites. They're called these negatively charged sites, and that's part of our testing system is is to determine um, or to estimate the total net negative charge, and that's the capacity of the soil to hold those plus charge nutrients. And once we know that capacity, then we can balance the proportion of that negative charge that's occupied with calcium, with potassium, and with magnesium. Okay. <clears throat> All right. And then I was I was curious about um, thinking about the different materials that could be added to the soil uh, to build their fertility. And um, I was wondering if we could explain maybe what is the difference between, say, a, a rock powder that's approved for organic production compared to the action of a synthetic fertilizer being used in the soil that is not allowed in organic production, and maybe what the two, what differences or similarities might be there between the two. Uh, Eric, could you touch on that a bit? 
Um, sure, it gets to the heart of organic farming and the uh, the slogan that has become very common of feed the soil, not the crop. And what you are doing when you add a rock powder to the soil or organic matter is building up a reservoir of relatively complex uh, chemical compounds that are going to have to be broken down. So in a rock powder, um, you have all sorts of very complex molecules in that rock that will be attacked, some by the biological activity, some by the acids in the soil, and slowly the nutrients are released from these complex rock compounds in the ionic form um, that plants can pick up. And when you buy a bag of chemical fertilizer, you're buying these uh, fertility nutrients already in their ionic form. Um, so you can buy something like ammonium nitrate or calcium nitrate or calcium phosphate. And then when that's added to the soil, those ionic compounds immediately separate into their ions and the nitrate or the phosphate is sitting there for the plant to take up. And so the difference comes right back to whether you're adding the ions that are in the right amount to feed the crop or you're adding the rock powder or organic matter to build up a reservoir that's slowly going to break down and release the ions. And I would also add that, um, you know, when you're adding complex materials, you're also supplying food and energy source to your microbial population, whereas with the, the simple chemical salts, you're not feeding the organisms. Like Eric said, you're feeding the plant rather than feeding the, the biology in the soil. Yeah, that's a very important point, Bruce. That, that you're, when you're an organic farmer, you're, you're really, uh, your whole system is designed around soil husbandry, uh, taking care of the, the life and the community in the soil. And so if you don't add something to feed that population of micro and macroorganisms, it will eventually disappear and you will become more and more dependent on adding uh, available fertility sources because you don't have the microorganisms to break down anything complex. Okay, and then I'm just curious about the, um, with the synthetic fertilizers and uh, I think, Bruce, you, you said chemical salts. Um, could you explain maybe just the, the makeup of those fertilizers and maybe how they're carried through the soil to the plant? Um, yeah, well, as Eric mentioned, um, when you add a, a synthetic fertilizer, they're already in the plant available form. And by salt, I mean something that will readily dissolve in water. It's not a complex material that needs to be broken down. As soon as it hits water, for instance, um, uh, say calcium nitrate that Eric mentioned, it immediately dissolves in the water into plus charge calcium ions and negatively charged nitrate ions, both of which are essential nutrients, but there's nothing, there's no, nothing uh, organic there, no, no carbon source that would, would be a food supply for a food source for any of the microbes in the soil. But um, so they immediately take up, you know, um, exchange sites in the soil and they um, are <clears throat> dissolved in the soil water the plant takes in these nutrients from the soil water, um, and as the soil water levels of these nutrients, nutrient ions are are, are uh, depleted, they're replenished from these uh, exchange or these holding sites, these exchange sites in the soil. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, the primary difference is you're supplying uh, nutrient ions 
from both sources, but you're also you're feeding not just uh, with an organic source. You're not feeding just the the soil water and the plant. You're feeding both the plant and the soil microbiology. Okay, all right. I think that's a good good foundation here for the beginning of the show. And uh, I just wanted to let um, listeners know that you are tuned in to Common Ground Radio. And today we are talking about soil management uh, in organic farming systems. And my guests uh, on the phone are Eric Seidman from MOFCA and Bruce Hoskins from the Maine Soil Testing Service. And then here in the, in the studio, we have two organic farmers, Nicholas Lindholm from Hackmatack Farm and Blue Hill Berry Company in Penobscot, and Paul Volkhausen from Happy Town Farm in Orland. And uh, I want to let listeners know that this is a call-in show, and in about five or seven minutes or so, we will open up the phone lines. Um, at that point, Eric Seidman is going to be leaving the show to free up that line so people can call in. So, um, Eric, I think before you go in a few minutes, I didn't know if there was anything else you wanted to be sure to uh, to get across to listeners or just share into the discussion. I'll take this opportunity to give out my phone number and email address again. Okay. Uh, because the people uh, think of questions after the show, uh, Mafka pays me to hang around and answer questions like that, um, as Bruce does. So my email is esideman at org, and that's my preferred way to get questions. But my phone number is 603-269-6201, and I'm happy to answer questions over the phone as well. Okay. All right. Well... I think, Eric, at this point, we can um, sign off and just say thanks for being here. And, thanks uh, for inviting me. Okay. Thanks, and, Eric. Thanks, Eric. And I uh, hope to see you soon. So. See you guys soon. All right. Yep. Thank you, Eric. See ya. Um, and then for listeners, uh, we'll wait a few minutes and let the phone lines get squared away before we can actually take calls. But at that, once we're ready, I'll, I'll give out the number, and, uh, and we'll move on from there. So... Um, for kind of the second half of the show, what I'd like to talk about is kind of these actual practical or practices that are used on organic farms um, in thinking about how you're managing soil and organic matter and uh, fertility and nutrients in the soil. So I think, um, Nicholas, I wanted to ask you a little bit because of uh, your blueberry operation, and I'm just curious if there's anything kind of unique in managing fertility for the blueberries, or just give a little bit of a yeah, so snapshot of what you do. Of course, they are quite unique. Um, they are native plant in their native soils. And as a wild blueberry farmer, we're not tilling the soil whatsoever either. Um, so my approach as a blueberry farmer to my blueberry field is very different from my approach to my vegetable field as a vegetable farmer, starting just with that. The... Uh, the addition of organic matter and and uh, and even just getting physical action going through tillage is is not anything that we can practice. So we're developing the top layer of soil. The top three inches is in a blueberry field is known as the duff layer, and your organic options uh, are limited to just you know adding rock powders or physical things like wood chips. Um, I I like to think of the soil kind of as more of a 
a verb than a noun, if you will. I say that kind of with humor, but also it's how I understand it. It's it's an event. It's a process. It's, it's kind of an unfolding. So I take a long-term view of it. It's not just a static thing, and I'm not just adding or putting things to it. Um, I think Eric and Bruce described the reasons why more, more better or more articulately than I could with the science knowledge. Um, but it, an analogy that I read about and I like to carry around is looking at the soil almost as a pantry, and especially as Bruce was talking about the cation exchange capacity. It's kind of like physical storage and how you can actually build that is really important. Um, and just specifically, quickly with the wild blueberries, I, I do add some rock powders in experimental proportions at this point. Um, you do uh, run into the problem of feeding weeds over the wild blueberry plants in a wild blueberry field. They're easily outcompeted by grasses and uh, shrubs and even trees. Um, so I work in a very small scale trying to feed my soil to feed the blueberry plants and not the weeds. I also experiment with wood chips as a mulch to help smother weeds and also build biological activity underneath it. Um, and that's very different, as I said, from being able to till the soil and uh, add green manures and things that, uh, as a vegetable farmer, I do in my vegetable field. Okay. All right. So a little bit of a different approach yeah, for sure. I, actually, I'm also dealing with a very different pH. We haven't really touched on how pH influences both the physical, biological, and chemical um, an action of soil. In a blueberry field, we're working at pH is ideally down at 4.0 as opposed to a, a much more neutral soil of 6.5 or so with mm -hmm. vegetables. Mm -hmm. So that seems like a management management issue there as well. Yeah. In managing. We haven't uh, talked about pH yet, but I did want to let listeners know that the phone lines are now open, and that number is one eight six six. 625-9378. And we actually have a caller right in. We have Rick from Waldoboro that is on the line. So, Rick, if you want to go ahead with your comment or question, please. Yeah, my question involves what's the optimal amount of organic matter. And I'd like to also end that answer or discussion to consider old organic matter. For instance, a manure pile that sat for five years and as I understand it, they talk about the optimal amount being pretty low, but it, I'm wondering if, you know, if it's old organic matter, if that really counts. As far as I know, the test for organic matter only doesn't discriminate between old stuff and new. And I'll listen on the phone if I can. Okay, sure. Uh, Bruce, did you want to address that question um, that Rick had? Sure. Organic matter in soil is, is, is very much a very complex mix of of partially broken down <clears throat> plant and animal residues to very well broken down plant and animal residues. Um, <clears throat> Fred Fred Magdoff, who, who wrote uh, um, you know, Building uh, Soils for Better Crops, he and, and Harold Von S, he has a great phrase. He calls, he says, organic matter is three different, <clears throat> made up of three different components. It's the living, which is roots and, and microbiology, the living, the dead, and the very dead. And the very dead is the well-broken-down old organic matter that's been degraded by, um, you know, by the soil microbes. Um, it supplies, you know, there's not much food supply left, but it still provides nutrient retention and moisture retention. <clears throat> it's the, the, the recently dead 
you know, relatively fresh organic matter that supplies food to microbes and also has probably the greater uh, supply of nutrients that during the breakdown process will become available to plants. <clears throat> so adding uh, organic matter to the soil, fresh organic matter, uh, is important for maintaining your, your beneficial microbe population. And, of course, you have several different sources, either from cover crops that are tilled in, uh, fresh organic matter to feed the soil, or from compost, which is partially degraded but still available for, as a as a food supply, to manures, which are fairly fresh. And, of course, there are aged manures that are partially broken down, but a lot of times, and especially if it's in a static pile that hasn't been turned, it's almost the same as, as fresh manure, uh, adding fresh manure to your soil. Not sure if that answers your question. No, uh, my question involves how much is is too much. Uh, if it's not fresh stuff, is I mean, can you have too much organic uh, material if it's if it's you know all very dead, or most of it's very dead except for the fresh? Right. Well, as I said, it's a mixture, and in 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 a, in a soil analysis, we, you were correct. We do just do a bulk, you know, total organic matter content, uh, and we don't really separate. The, the three different fractions in the soil, at least in a routine soil test. But you can have, I mean, if you get much above, you know, relatively speaking, about 10% organic matter, um, if your soil dries out, I mean, if you've ever tried to um, wet up peat moss right out of the bale, you know that it doesn't take up water very well. And the higher, I've seen many soils that are up, you know, 15 to 20% organic matter that when they're very dry, they start to repel water just like peat moss does. So there are water relationship problems if the if the organic matter level is too high. Um, yeah, I have it, noticed that that when it's really dry, uh, the water wants to run off the surface. Right. So usually we're drawing the line somewhere around you know eight or ten percent. It really is fairly arbitrary. It really depends on the type of organic matter that you're adding. So kind of painting with a wide brush, I suppose. But, yeah, you can't have too much. Okay. Does that help Thank you out, Rick? Yeah, it doesn't really answer the question as, uh, about uh, how much is too much of the very dead stuff. Okay. Well, um, maybe we can come across that later in the show. Uh, I don't have an answer. My my understanding. Thank you, Bruce, for naming. I think it was Fred Magdoff, who's that that concept came from. Because I carry that concept in my head, but I could never remember who actually said it, and I know I didn't. But yeah, the, my understanding was the very dead stuff is really humus. Like it's not just old compost. It's not just broken down. It's actually humus, which is exactly. really hard and difficult to build. So, I think Rick's pile of aged manure is still more dead stuff and not the really dead stuff. But the short answer is yes, you can add too much, but you kind of, I think my answer to Rick was you, you have to look at your soil tests and, and kind of base it on the crop you're going to put in as well as the conditions that the soil already has. If it's, you know, if you feel like you've fed a lot of that aged manure in the past year or so, you don't have to add so much. But if it's been a long time, you've added something, then you want to put some in. Yeah. And Paul, you had yeah, something to add? And I would add the first step is to send Bruce a soil test <laughs> because... <laughs> That way you'll know. I mean, if, you know, maybe your soil only has 5% organic matter, but, you know, that's still pretty good. Uh, but Bruce will tell you, the, tell you that, and he can tell you exactly what you need to add 
to make your soil optimum. So, so I tell everybody <laughs> the first thing to do is take a soil test, send it to Bruce. Okay. Yeah, I've already done that step. Okay, <laughs> good. All right, Rick. Well, thanks for calling in. We'd like to get the line open so we can get some other callers in for the for the second half of the show. Thanks for calling. Um, all right, to jump back to practices while we wait for uh, any other questions from listeners. And, Paul, I just wanted to turn to you on this one. And um, if you could speak to some of your uh, soil management practices on the farm. Yeah, I, th I think on the f our farm, we can't really separate soil management from the overall organic management of the farm. Mm -hmm. We're firm believers in a diversified farm and that that diversity should include animals. Um, the animals manure and bedding is made into compost and um, that's one of the, the um, important additives to our soil. And then the animals can use things that aren't saleable from the farm and they can actually graze um, and eat uh, some of the cover crops that we grow. Uh, the way we manage our soils is we have on the vegetable ground, we have a six year rotation that includes four years of vegetables and then two years of a, of a cover crop, a green manure crop. And the first year we seed uh, oats with alfalfa, uh, yellow clover, and a type of grass, usually the brome grass or timothy. Um, when the oats are, are starting to head out, we graze that with our sheep. And then um, the alfalfa and the clover will come up through that um, after grazing. And then we let that grow for two seasons and um, then plow down that uh, for a green manure crop. And uh, we can plant even heavy feeders like corn or winter squash without any um, additional, uh, without any compost or anything else needed to be added. In between those years, we, we do add uh, compost that we make on the farm, and we try to gather any kind of materials that most people would consider waste to put in the compost and make it as, as varied and diversified as we can. And then we also try to incorporate green manure crops in our rotations, um, such as after we plant peas, um, they're harvested early so we can plant rye and vetch and um, let that grow. And then that will supply the nutrients we need for a late planted crop like transplanted melons. And then we try to cover everything with rye over the winter so that we're soaking up those nutrients that might still be available and preventing erosion. Well, so that's, <laughs> I can go on and on. the six-year system. <laughs> All right, well, we do have a caller. We have Yo from Tremont. Uh, Yo, if you'd like to uh, give us your question or comment, please. Good morning. For, Good morning. For decades, I thought that what I had to do in my garden every spring was get out there and till it all up and make it nice and friable. And in all that time, I had disappointing results. The, the plants didn't grow to what I thought was their potential, and the root balls were only a few inches across, and it was easy to yank them out. And then a few years ago, I went to no-till. And now my plants are so hardy, I can't yank them out. The roots grow all the way across the garden. I had to use a saw 
to harvest my Brussels sprouts because I couldn't <laughs> yank them out of the ground. Now, here's my question. Um, I've had I've had positive results with Tilfree, and it's a lot less work. But but the question that uh, came to my mind listening to you talk about root aeration is. Does the process of continually adding mulch to the surface without tilling likely to create more soil compaction? Thank you for putting on this program, and thank you to everyone for supporting Community Radio. Okay. Bruce, do you want to address that, that question about mulch is building up, and does that increase compaction on the surface over time? Um, yeah, no-till is... is uh is really a good option. Uh, sometimes it's not real compatible with vegetable production, certainly with transplants it is, but yeah, we're, we're, we're really emphasizing cover cropping and minimal tillage at least. But um, I would, uh, I'd ask you, how, how's your earthworm population? Okay. He's not on the line anymore, oh, okay. but okay. But that would be a good gauge maybe? Yeah. If usually, you know, when you're adding uh, cover crops or, 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 um, or just surface mulches, you're, 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 you're building an earthworm population too, and they're actually doing the tilling for you. They're aerating the soil, they're pulling in fresh organic matter from the surface, uh, and they will work it down several inches. But um, yeah, till, tillage is, is, um, is um, especially frequent tillage, uh, supercharges the soil with oxygen. Uh, soil, soil air has oxygen in it, which is obviously essential for, for roots and, and microbes to function properly, but the oxygen level is lower than the atmospheric oxygen above it. So every time you till the soil, you're supercharging the soil with oxygen, and the, the microbial population will respond with a big flush of growth and actually speed the breakdown of organic matter above and beyond what's necessary for proper nutrient cycling, and it breaks down your organic matter supply all that much faster um so you know we certainly advocate minimal tillage um only when you need to incorporate a certain amount of material like compost or or lime or sulfur to alter ph um but beyond that uh it, as, as infrequently as possible um that that's my take on it okay all right. Thanks, Bruce. And we do have another caller. We have Margaret from Orland on the line. Would you like to go ahead with your question or comment, Margaret? Yeah, sure. I'm not a farmer. I, am, I have a backyard uh, organic garden, I guess. It's not certified, but I don't add anything, you know, inappropriate. I have a bunch of questions. Um, I can give you them all, and then you can just pick the ones you want to respond to. Um, one is about biochar. Does it help to add um, small pieces of uh, that sort of thing from the wood stove, uh, throw that in the, in the garden? Uh, another one is how do I encourage some more fungi in the soil um, so I can release the minerals that are in those little stones all through the soil? Um, and another thing is I have no source of um, animal manures. I don't have any animals and no way to get to my backyard conveniently to bring in, you know, a bunch of um, <clears throat> manure from farms. So I was wondering about the use of urine in uh, a garden, and um, does that release the nitrogen too fast? Um, 
And then the other question is about crab, lobster, shell, waste, that sort of thing. I've tried putting some of that stuff in, and it just doesn't seem to break down very well. It's kind of a nuisance. Is there a, a trick to all that? Okay, I'll give you something to chew on. Thanks. <laughs> that might be a whole other show, but we'll... we'll uh... <laughs> Sounds like it, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'd look at Paul or Nicholas. Do you have anything <clears throat> maybe to put in there and then... Uh, quickly addressing like wood ash, I'd be very careful and go with your soil test recommendations. They'll some of them, especially I think if you check the organic option, Bruce, and you can correct me too. But I think if you check the organic option, they'll actually give you some numbers for wood ash in particular. But it might be more appropriate to put wood ash through a compost pile first, rather than directly applying it to garden soil. But you have to be very careful with the amount of phosphorus that that is or potash, potassium yeah. that that's adding. Um, I would address the fungal question um, based on my knowledge of uh, fungal populations in soil. They're they're stronger in relation to biological. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, bacterial. Bacterial. Sorry. Yeah. Populations in forest soils and also in like my undisturbed blueberry field. A way to maybe encourage them would be through lignin sources, i.e. like wood chips or sawdust, that sort of thing, which is another difficult product to add to a vegetable field and probably best done through a careful compost pile. Okay. Uh, that's what I would recommend is that compost, you know, with the, the fish wastes and the lack of manure, there's all kinds of things you can compost, grass clippings, leaves, uh, and... So if you compost it, the compost process is really speeding up the breakdown of all those materials and that the, the fish waste and the crab waste and lobster waste will break down much more quickly in a compost pile than they will directly in the soil. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Um, let me just take a minute again to remind listeners that uh, you are tuned into WERU, and this is Common Ground Radio, and today we are talking about soil management in organic farming systems with Bruce, Bruce Hoskins of the Maine Soil Testing Service and Nicholas Lindholm of Hackmatack Farm and Blue Hill Berry Company in Penobscot, Maine, and Paul Volkhausen from Happy Town Farm uh, right down the road here in Orland. And the number to call in for any comments or questions is one 866 6259378 and um Bruce I just wanted to ask you back to that kind of wood ash and biochar question uh if you had any recommendations or concerns in that realm uh biochar is, is has been gaining in popularity um in the last probably 10 years or so uh we've we've run a number of samples on on research projects where soils have been amended with biochar. Um, uh, and, you know, in, in soils in this part of the world, uh, biochar seems to have a minimal benefit as opposed to, you know, where it was first discovered, which is in uh, tropical environments with extreme weathering and, and soils that are millions of years old. Um, where most of the available nutrient content from intense weathering uh, has been lost, and, and adding any kind of uh, nutrient retention capacity really improves those soils. And that's really the primary benefit of biochar is to improve nutrient retention, that, that negative charge in the site, in, in the soil. Um, 
to hold to hold available nutrients. As far as a food supply, um, the carbon that's in biochar is charcoal, and, and microbes can't use that. So you're not really feeding your microbial biomass um, by adding biochar, but it does give them actually uh, more locations, more surface area, little nooks and crannies to populate. It gives them, them habitation sites in the soil. So it seems like it would be best used with some other food source for the microbes as well. Yes, food and shelter. Be, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, well, we do have another caller. We have Beatty from Camden on the line. Beatty, if you'd like to go with your comment or question. Well, I can't remember whether you've covered this or not, but Margaret asked about adding urine, and um, I used to dilute it and add it, and occasionally do to really kind of power up something. But mostly I add it to a big leaf pile, which I renew every year, and that kind of takes care of it. I don't know how much runs through and gets lost, but at least I, I know I'm not overdoing it. And it seems to help the leaves break down. So it's like the first stage of the leaf, com- the leaf compost. And I have a lot of town leaves, so okay. I don't know whether Margaret does. Okay. So that seems like a good use for, for urine. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you, Beatty. Um, does anyone have experience using urine? I mean, I imagine with livestock, you're going to have some livestock yeah, urine. The livestock but... <laughs> urine goes right into the bedding, and, and the bedding is important to absorb the, the urine, and the nitrogen in the urine is the, the complement to the carbon in the, in the bedding, the wood shavings or the straw or whatever you're using. Mm-hmm. So you know, in a compost pile, I would think urine would be a valuable addition, to, uh, especially if you don't have any other source of nitrogen like animal manure, mm-hmm. but, you know, if, and, and dry leaves are, are high in carbon, so BD's mixture of urine and, and leaves is a, is a very good start for a compost pile. Seems like a good balance there. Bruce, did you want to add anything to the... Um, yeah, I get questions on it occasionally. Um, we don't outright recommend it, but there's, I certainly know a number of people who use it as a nutrient source. <clears throat> it's, a, it's a relatively good nutrient source. Um, but it does have a high salt content, so if you do want to experiment with it, make sure you dilute it first. Um, but I think you know that uh, adding it to a compost pile is, is um, that's a great idea uh, because it is a very uh, quick uh, available nitrogen source, and it does balance high carbon materials. Um, and you know if it goes through the composting process, there's never any issue um, with 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 pathogens. You know, so anybody who's who's squeamish about it but doesn't want to waste that nutrient source, I, I would I think putting it through a compost pile is a is a great idea. Okay, all right, thanks, Bruce. And we do have another caller. We have Aaron from Rockport on the line. Would you like to go ahead with your comment or question? Aaron, do we still have you on the line? Yep, I'm here. Okay. Uh, thanks for the show. Wonderful topics. Uh, in um, response to Margaret's question about the fungi in the soil, I think she's on to something uh, good there as far as uh, we can, as farmers, gardeners, I think we can do a lot to manage the microbial populations in the soil and um, certainly add in the biochar um, and then less tillage and more organic matter um, is going to help promote the fungi in the soil. Uh, and letting those compost piles age for a while because as they heat up, 
the fungi get killed off, and then as they cool back down and age, the fungi come in. So uh, the age the age of the compost will help to determine some of the microbial population. So she's going for more of the fungi, then that's good, and those are the ones that can help build that good crumb structure. So, um, but really, the tillage is the one that I'm trying to figure out for the organic systems how to do that. So I don't know if. You guys have any ideas? I know you talked about it a little bit earlier about reducing the tillage, but uh, it's definitely a challenge in organic farming in Maine. (laughs) Yeah, Aaron, we'll have, um, I can, I'll ask Nicholas to speak to some of his practices. I'll speak. Thanks for calling in, Aaron. Briefly, yeah, yeah, rather quickly about the reduced tillage system I use in my vegetable field. It's uh, what's known as ridge tillage. I took some other ideas from other farmers and researchers and kind of adapted it to my farm system and our soils here, but it's a uh, basically a, a two-year rotation that I use in terms of 50% of my land is out of production for a full year and 50% in vegetable production. And the out of production is a cover crop year, fallow year. I'm growing green manures, um, mostly in an annual cycle. I don't use long-term clovers or alfalfa like Paul does. Um, It's mostly uh, oats and peas, buckwheat, and sometimes rye and oats over winter. Um, Then the vegetable year, I use a particular setup with my cultivating toolbar to make ridges. They're kind of basically a a single-row raised bed, which incorporates all that decaying, uh, that that dead and decaying matter from the cover crop year into these single-row raised beds. And uh, the the physical and biological and chemical uh, reactions that then happen uh, have been I've found beneficial for for almost every vegetable crop that that I grow. Um, it addresses a lot of the issues of soil and water, uh, sorry, air and water movement through the soil, with the addition of of, of recently dead and decaying um, green manure and cover crop. So that helps hold water in that. In that ridge, yeah, that you're creating that wouldn't dry out if it's kind of elevated or correct. You get the the benefits basically when you think of raised beds. The benefit of it, it it's also of a farm scale where I'm you know not, I'm able to grow crops to sell and not just on a garden scale using you know mechanized equipment um, mm-hmm. without using overtilling and you know. My my primary tillage is a moldboard plow, but I use that maybe once every two years at most. I often can just incorporate the dead and decaying cover crop residues into um, the vegetable year with with more simpler secondary tillage tools. Okay. All right. And Paul, I wanted to ask you. I just had a wrote down a note in the manure realm. I was just wondering if uh, are you always other than <coughs> grazing animals on land you're about to return back to vegetable production. I'm wondering if you're always composting livestock manures or are you ever applying it, spreading it fresh? We compost all of our manure except what the animals drop when they're grazing. Yeah, okay. (laughs) All right. Um, And then in the manure realm, just from an earlier caller, Bruce, I wanted to ask you one question about it. If someone is just using kind of straight cow manure, whether it's composted or aged, if that's a kind of an annual routine is there any type of one-sidedness or nutrient kind of overload or deficiency that might come from continual manure use um well well typically well the one thing you might want to mention is if you're using fresh manure that's not been composted 
there is a holdout time, certainly if you're certified organic. Yes. Um, so we do recommend manure and low organic matter soil tests, but we specify to put it on in the fall. That's not an absolute requirement. It's just a recommendation because that gets you past that, um, <clears throat> what is it, 90-day holdout time for above-ground crops and 120-day holdout time for root crops mm-hmm. after application. Um, so that's, that's the first point. But as far as uh, nutrient balance goes, um, a lot depends on, well, some, some of it depends on the type of, of manure. Uh, cow manure, particularly dairy manure, tends to have a pretty high potassium content. So if you're on a fairly um, uh, loamy soil that's not really sandy, sandy soils tend not to hold potassium, and you lose quite a bit of it from one year to the next. But on heavier soils, you can really build potassium, sometimes a little too high, uh, with straight cow manure. Um, and also with continuous manure, you can also build your phosphorus levels. This would be most extreme with um, with poultry manure. Okay. Um, but the other issue is the type of bedding that's mixed in with the manure. Um, there's not all that much cow manure compared to what there was 20 or 30 years ago, not as many dairy farms. A lot of the available manure, especially for home gardeners, is horse manure. And that has typically a lot of uh, wood shavings and sawdust mixed as bedding. And that really high-carbon wood uh, fiber, even though there's manure and urine mixed in, uh, quite often that excess carbon takes some time to break down. The microbes take some time to break it down. And they're cycling the nitrogen very tightly while they're breaking down that excess carbon. And you can wind up with uh, basically a nitrogen deficiency during the breakdown process if you're using a manure, regardless of the source, that has a lot of wood fiber in it. Okay. Well, that's a good good consideration uh, for home gardeners as well. And um, we are getting down into the last minute or two of the show here. Um, so... I did want to just thank uh, our guests that have been on the show today. Today we are talking about or, um, soil management in organic farming systems. And for the first half of the show, we had Eric Seibin on from uh, MOFCA. And Bruce, I would like to thank you, Bruce Hoskins, from the Maine Soil Testing Service up in Orono. Thanks for being here today. I'm glad to be here. And I uh, also want to thank here in the studio, Paul Volkhausen from Happy Town Farm right here in Orland. Thanks for being here, Paul. Thank you. And then Nicholas Lindholm from Hackmatack Farm and Blue Hill Berry Company in Penobscot. Nicholas, thanks for being here. You're welcome. And um, remember that Common Ground Radio comes to you the first Friday of every month right here at 10 a.m. on WERU. I'd like to thank Amy Brown for engineering the show. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Maine Short Film Festival, Thursday, April 7th at the Alamo Theater in Bucksport. Films by Maine filmmakers on the